Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast, or if you're new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I have a very special friend as a guest this week. Todd McCaffrey I met uh, via his mom, Anne, who was a lovely woman who uh, was a one of the first judges for the Rise of Future contest. And actually, I guess I should say his mom, not his mom. Um, anyway, um, Todd has been a, uh, I guess he's continued on with his mother's legacy on both as a judge for the Writers of the Future contest and as a New York Times bestselling author with the Dragon Writers of Pern universe, as well as the many stories he's co-authored with the Winter Twins and that he's created in his own universes as well. So, because um, I read a couple of the, of the books in, in the uh, Twin Souls series, so I am prepared to talk about that a bit as well. So I'm happy to introduce Todd, who is also, just so y'all know, he's also... Um, an honorable mention in the Illustrators of the Future contest. So he's a, a man of all seasons. Welcome, Todd. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. And yes, I was wondering if you're going to mention that honorable mention thing. I, I, you know, I'm still chuffed about it. I'm waiting to see what next quarter brings. Uh, it's Brianna Winner who said, and I'm going to quote her badly, but she said something like, if you're creative, then you're probably creative in many different fields. Uh, and I took that as a challenge with art. Uh, in fact, it was Brit Winner who encouraged me to uh, consider applying for a Master of Fine Arts degree, which I got what in 2018 from Claremont Graduate University. Wow. So it's been fun. Yeah. That's amazing. So have you always been an artist, but just never really let it blossom? And then this positive influence from the Winter Twins helped that blossom? Or were you always just kind of like dabbling in it and uh, just waiting for that right moment. I had some bad advice when I was a kid. I was told that because my straight lines weren't completely straight, I could obviously not become an artist. So it took me a number of years to overcome that particular parental advice, not my mother. I had taken some art classes at the local community college in Norco and had gotten encouragement also from one of the professors who was teaching me, which really helped and, and helped break it out. But I, you know, I, I started off as a mechanical engineer and all the original engineers, all the greats, you know, you go back to Da Vinci, Archimedes, uh, Newton, they were all excellent artists, at least for sketches and more. And so I think the two overlap. It makes sense that that does, that it would, because it it's that whole creative bent to a personality, to a, a mindset that you want to be able to do that. And uh, that's great that you can. We've had, I guess, maybe half a dozen, not even that many, uh, maybe it's only like four winners who have done both uh, contests. You know, they've been a winner, both the writer and the illustrator. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing skill that somebody can, if they can actually do it. And so I'm totally impressed with your ability to do this. Well, thank you. Yes, and I'm I'm going to keep on trying. You know, uh, the as as Joni Labaki famously says, an honorable mention means keep trying. You're close. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, we've had some people gone over, you know, nearly fifty times of entering the contest before actually winning. So it's, it is a matter of persistence, and we will discuss that a bit too. But first, let's just get on to. Your, your mother was a wonderful person. I, I, mean, I adored her. She was great. She loved root beer. And every time she came out here, I always bought her a whole different, veritable plethora of types of root beers. And even on the Crystal Singer, she inscribed in her book saying, thank you. For, she thanked me for all the hires and the other root beers that I'd gotten for her over the years. But what was it like to walk into her shoes and take over Pern? Well, you can't really take over. We, um, in... 2000, mom had a heart attack. And then in this, that was in the fall. In the spring of 2001, she had a stroke. Uh, it took us a while to realize what the stroke had done to her. It kicked out her short-term memory, which is really bad. But we realized at that point that we were on golden time, that every day was precious. We weren't, we didn't know when we would, would lose her. So we made the best of it, and Mom and I had talked about collaborating, and so we collaborated uh, on Dragonskin uh, and went on to do several more. It was quite interesting. She was 
leery, shall we say, of letting anybody else play with her characters because she knew them so well, and I understood that. So I worked us into the third pass on Pern, which is an entirely different place in in the Pern time frame from where Lassa is, who was all the way up in the ninth pass on Pern. It's like 2,000 years in the past. But we had a marvelous time doing that, and we established a few collaborative ground rules. Number one was let the New York Times bestselling author win. (laughs) And then the other one was let your mother win. Um, so mostly we, we, we had a great time. It was fun. It was, it was incredibly bonding. You know, it was, it was golden time. Yeah. So she was a, she was always, I am what, one of the big things and one of the reasons mom became a judge for the writer of the future is she said, don't just return a favor, pass it on. Uh, and so part of her being a judge was passing it on to future writers. Uh, and, and we try to live up to that legacy. That's, that's actually very, very good. She was, she was so adamant about that. And she was also, um, very adamant about being a judge. And she was, she definitely had no problem sharing her mind on the fact that, you know, I think she was the first female judge for the contest. And this was, I mean, at that point, that was in 1986 when she became a judge the second year. And, um, was very proud of it, but has also made it very clear that it's, this is for everybody. And I mean, that's been something that, you know, Mr. Hubbard's had all along to, wanting to be able to do, but she helped to make sure that in the here and now, even with him having uh, passed, that she was going to make sure that his wishes that it was for everybody really was held true. Yeah. So anyway, so um, I got your preamble now on whatever you want to call you're doing with Pern, you're not taking it over. You're like, you're assuming guardianship or you're, you have tackled. Cause your sister also writes into Permuners too. Yes. Gigi's written uh, dragon's code. And that is the latest Pern book. Um, actually going back, mom and I wrote, well, I wrote three solo books in the third pass and mom and I wrote five collaborations. And by that time that had been oof, nearly 10 years. Uh, and so she said, and I agreed that we needed to take a break or we wouldn't be fresh. And so we did. And unfortunately, before we could get back to work, she passed away. Um, but we, the Pern universe is a very special place. There's a lot of room to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would like to see more of them. Mom, however, was adamant in her will that she only wanted Gigi and I to write on Pern. Um, so you know, we're still working on that. I also had discovered several stories that I wanted to tell. Uh, and I have been doing that a lot. And then of course I met up with the winter twins and everything changed. Um, but we still, we still look at Pern and, and love it. Um, I know the fans would love to see more. They'd love to see mom write more books, but that's just not possible. Um, and, uh, did she you know, have any, did she have any other outlines for any other stories, Pern stories that you know that uh, were locked in some safe that all of a sudden is going to get found <laughs> out, like what happened with uh, Herbert? Uh, who was the author who, who who magically had stuff discovered well after they passed? You know, somebody was waiting for the ink to dry or something like that. Um, yeah, no, she was working on one. But by that time, she'd had a number of medical issues hitting her. She'd had, you know, more than just the one stroke. It it wasn't working. So we've sort of looked at that and looked at what she wanted to do with that. But we haven't moved forward with it yet because we spent a lot of time recovering. And, you know, for me, I've got a lot of third pass stories I'd still like to tell. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a number of other stories there. But there's nothing there's, there's nothing hiding in a vault waiting for us to go, oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. It's just not there. Just had to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so now how many books have you – so you said you wrote five books with Anne? We collaborated on five books in the third pass. That would be Dragon's Kin, Dragon's Fire, Dragon Harper. Uh, now I have to slip over a bunch of books. Dragon's – wait a minute. I'm missing somebody. Dragons, Time, Sky Dragons, and no, that's all five. Okay. Yep. And then how many have you written out since on your own? 
Oh gosh, the number's becoming insane. Uh, and, oh, it's, and that, kind it's of, that many. Okay. Well, with the Winter Twins, we have 20 in the Twin Soul series. We have one standalone novel, The Magpie's War, which is sort of awaiting the start of a sequel. Uh, we have one nonfiction book, The Right Path World Building. Um, I have three more, and I've got a fourth out with uh, Alpha Readers right now. So it's kind of like 30. Uh, and I wave my hands when I say that. Amazon tries to tell me that I've got 84 imprints out there. Uh, it's counting things where I have short stories and things and so on. And it's kind of like, well, that's a very flattering number. Uh, but, you know, I tend to say I've got at least 30 books out. Okay. Well, that's very nice. Thank and you. now you've got, you publish with your, all the Dragon Riders, is, that's all with, uh, or all the Pern series, that's all with Del Rey? Yes, it's with Penguin Random House Del Rey. Okay, good. So that's that's pretty much you just had that locked in, and that's your you're good to go on that as long as they're alive and kicking as a publishing house. Hopefully, yep. Okay, so that's so that's on the Dragon Rider side. Now on these on the I guess I call them the indie side, working with the Winter Twins. So how does that work then? That's your. I mean, it's obviously you've got a. a a good gig going there with Del Rey, but on the indie side of how does that work? Well, it's, it's really interesting. I, um, when you're writing in the indie world, you are your own publisher. So you're not just the author anymore. You've also got to be the person that puts the book up on wherever you want it to be. You have to understand formatting. You better have an editor or be a really good editor. You have to line up all the fun stuff like get yourself a cover, uh, get yourself first readers. And then when you get the book up, you have to market it. You have to advertise it. You have to let people know what's happening. So this adds a whole bunch more. On the other hand, it gives you a greater amount of freedom. Um, I, I am almost embarrassed about the number of times I've changed covers on books now because I can do it so easily. Also, if somebody tells me, hey, there's a typo in your book, I can actually change it within about 24 hours, uh, which is something with the traditional publishing world you just can't do. Right. Um, you know, and the other thing is the traditional publishing world, because of what it has to do and where it lives, uh, it pays a lower royalty amount than the independent. Now, on the other hand, with the independent world, you generally tend to charge a lower price because you don't have that huge marketing machine behind you. But it is quite possible as an independent to be your own boss and to totally make a, a decent living. It does require work and it requires persistence, but being a writer always requires work and persistence. You know, if there's one thing that every author I've ever met says is the key to success, it's don't give up. Right. Wow. So we we set up the twi the Winter Twins. Really, they I mean they were at the very early forefront of the whole independent publishing movement. That they were they were back in the dinosaur age, as it were. They published, um, gosh, twelve years ago now. Uh, and when they did that, they had to find. Uh, uh, you know, a printing house that would print their books. They had to warehouse them. They brought them to Comic-Cons and places and, and sold them that way. And then finally, when we got Kindle and KDP and all these other ebook things, they could put their books up on ebooks, but they were available before ebooks were a thing. Um, so they sort of started way back in the Stone Age and, and came forward, which was an entirely different world from where we are now. There are so many helpful tools to get you published. Also, there's the latest one from Amazon called, uh, if I got it right, Vela, uh, which allows you to publish shorter works and, and get paid for it. So you could write short stories and novellas and so on. Um, so the world has become huge and open, and you now find yourself in the same problem that everybody has found themselves in, which is how do you get noticed in this crowd of people? Correct. And from what I've observed at least up until a year and a half ago the winter twins and once you connected with them yourself as well conventions was a major uh tool that was used to meet people you had the the, the booth there plus you all, all the different panels and stuff was that like that seemed to be like a really good way to, to get yourself known and, and to be able to sell your wares it's I'm still evaluating that. You can you can sell 
at a convention, maybe 300 copies of a book if it's a really good book and you're lucky. And you can sell a lot of, you know, you can sell a number of books, but you kind of want to be selling 300 books a week. Uh, and so conventions aren't going to quite do that. They do give you visibility. They're, they're a marketing tool. I like to see them as a selling tool. I like to, to go to a convention and uh, believe that I'm going to make a profit doing it. Uh, and it's very hard to, to sit there and say, okay, I, I saw a thousand people at this convention, at this, at this comic convention, and that means that I've sold so many books because I saw them. Very hard to translate that back into something you can go ahead and, and put a figure on. Um, so, you know, you're shooting in the dark a little bit with that. But some of those people will become your lifelong fans. And lifelong fans are gold. Uh, they're the people that will buy your next book and your next book. They're the people that will stop people in their tracks and say, you got to read this, which is what every author wants to hear. And that's the sort of stuff that starts what, you know, what we call viral marketing. People go, oh, wow, you know, mm-hmm. in a hole in the ground, there live the hobbits, you know, from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. That's sort of stuff where people are just quoting things at you. The, uh, the litany against fear from Dune, which has become, you know, used by so many people now. So it certainly helps. I'm sort of not, I, I don't know the magic. I think the magic, the somebody, somehow you make your book go, you know, international USA Today bestseller. That's that's a formula that everybody's trying to find and nobody's got. Yeah. I mean, one thing that, because one thing that we try to do from Galaxy Press is attend conventions and you know, we, we obviously try to break even at least on the on the cost of doing the convention. But the main thing we go for is capturing identities. You know, people like you're talking about, they're getting that lifelong fan. You know, if you get somebody that buys a book and you get their and they give you their identities, then that gives you the ability to continue to market them because we have a lot more books than that one or two they're going to buy at a convention. Yeah, you know, gives us the opportunity to to pitch them, and then all the new releases, all the new Rise of the Future books that we come out with, that gives them the ability to um, purchase that and so that. That's at least the concept for us and a lot of other direct marketers. They like to go to the conventions so that they can then get the either subscriptions for their product line or get an identity so they can continue to market to them afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear that, that the comic conventions, as they were pre-pandemic, were a great way to gain legitimacy. Mm-hmm. If you had a booth there, you know, you, you were seen as at least somewhat real and credible. It was also, I mean, writing is a hard job. And a lot of times um, you're in a dark room by yourself trying to make sense of a world that nobody else has seen. And being out there and finding fans or having fans come up to you and tell you how much they liked your work is, is stuff you stoke up. That's fuel you store up for the darker days. Uh, and that can be invaluable. Yeah. So that's that's really worth it. Yeah, I think that's um, that's just an important aspect to it. Because if you're going to go independent, you do need to pick up all these different hats that a regular publisher, which you're paying for that with your less with your reduced royalty, but they're covering all those other things ostensibly, you know, that need to be done to uh, to sell your books. But if you do it yourself, you you have much more cause on getting a result provided you actually do what needs to be done and know what you're doing and actually do it. Now there's a group in this line or in this vein called 20 books to 50 K. Craig Martell and Michael Anderley are the, the powerhouses behind it. The thesis is that if you publish 20 books and they're good books and you do everything else, you should be able to see $50,000 a year in income in, you know, hopefully net, not gross. Right. Uh, and they have found, they have, they have founded a huge organization or really it's an association of like-minded people and they're, they, they swap success stories and ways of doing things. Um, they have an annual convention in Las Vegas, They have a few others around the world, but the big one is 20 Books to 50K Las Vegas, which is coming up in November. 
for people who are working in the writers of the future vein, my suggestion would be win the writers of the future. And then if you're thinking of being an independent publisher, check out 20 books to 50K. I wouldn't try doing it the other way, but it also, I mean, if you're multi-talented and you're writing so many words and you've got novels in the back corner, you may want to do that. You may, you may want to look into 20 books to 50K and look at what this hap- what happens. But one of the things that's come out of the whole indie movement is people don't need agents anymore. People don't need major publishers anymore. They can still make an awfully good living, sometimes better than if they went through the traditional publishers. The world is changing. That's interesting. So that's, you're the, I've done lots of interviews talking with people about this, but you're the first one that's come out just like in uh, so boldly with that, with that premise there. So. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, I, so way back in 1990 or so, uh, or maybe it was even 86, I toyed seriously with the idea of quitting my day job and trying to find a way to make electronic books because I thought that was the wave of the future. Now, we may you know, flash forward to 2021. Oh, look, I'm right. Uh, but I wasn't Jeff Bezos, and I didn't have the capital to do it, and so that didn't happen. But the point being that this has changed the world. This has changed everything. Right. Anybody who wants to, who is willing to do the work, and it can be some work, can get published these days. The, the barrier to entry to becoming a published author is so incredibly low. Uh, really, it's, you know, the reason you don't do it is because, A, you don't have the book yet, or, you know, you're allowing yourself to fail. And because that barrier to entry is so low, we're having an explosion of, of uh you know, printed material that we can, we can read, you know, we still have the problem of finding the printing material we like the most, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. different. Uh, one of the things that 20 books to 50 K shows off is there's, you know, there's a large broad swath. There's range for everybody. I've been doing some research and along the way I discovered much to my surprise that, uh, George Martin's game of Thrones, the first book, what was it? A song of ice of fire? Yeah. Uh, was, it took 15 years before it got on the New York Times bestseller list. It was published 15 years before it got up there. You know, and part of the reason it got on the bestseller list was because of the TV series. But persistence pays. Right? Again, you know, so when you get into, if you say, I'm going to become a full-time writer, I would suggest you consider that that's something that's going to take about five years to actually start becoming something where you can give up the day job. Right. Uh, it's it it takes that sort of persistence. Also, if you walk in there knowing that it's going to take you five years or even fifteen years, you can plan accordingly. And I think that's really huge. But but today, the the barriers to entry as an author they're they're not the old ones. They're not the oh I have to find an agent. Oh the agent has to go submit it to a to a a publishing house. Oh the editor at the publishing house has to put their their reputation on the line to get you published. Oh and so on and so on and so right. forth. Um, the advantage of that old school way was there were a lot of people who signed off on that particular literary work before it got on bookshelves. The disadvantage was there were a lot of people along the way who could say no. So, you know, what you get in the independent world is you get the ability to do what you want, but you have to understand that a lot of what everyone wants is going to involve making mistakes along the way. Correct. So, you know, but I would say, yeah, if you want to, if, if, if you want to, don't, don't let the, I have to get an agent, I have to find a publisher stand in your way. I would recommend against that these days. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's a good thing to, to know. Now, when you write your books with the Winter Twins, because obviously the ones that are going to go through Del Rey, you just have, you have a universe you're contributing to. As long as you're consistent to that and true to that, that can, that's going to continue just to, to roll along there. But on your indie, on your indie published books, how much do you do um, SEO in terms of titles or putting certain keywords or phrases in the, in the uh, chapter titles or as you're writing the book? Does that play a factor at all if you're counting on Google and analytics to be able to uh, help spring you along? 
I'm not counting on Google and analytics to help me spring me along. Uh, Google and analytics are so far from my potential readers that they're useless. You know, I'm, I've played with a couple of things. There's something called draft to digital draft to digital.com that allows you to upload your books and converts it to eBooks and markets it to many markets, including Kobo, Nook, Amazon, uh, Apple, da, 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 long list. Um, they take a 10% royalty off the top. Um, but they put it everywhere for you. Um, conversely, you can go what we call um, narrow, and you can just go with Amazon.com. Amazon will allow you to put up your ebook, to get print books up there. Now they've got a, a beta program to do hardcovers. You can use um, Audible ACX to uh, to actually record books and put them up, and you can also enroll in this thing called Kindle Unlimited. Kindle Unlimited with Amazon requires that you not be distributed anywhere else. So you have to work with Amazon. You can't put it up on Nook. You can't put it up on Kobo. There's a trade-off. Uh, some people believe that going wide, going to all these different platforms uh, is more remunerative than just sticking with Amazon and, and locking yourself, quote, locking yourself into a monopoly. But you're not really. You can get out of there pretty quick. My experience my personal experience when I tried the experiment was that draft to digital was not working for, as well for me uh, as going with Kindle Unlimited. With Kindle Unlimited, you get paid by the page read. Uh, and you get some people, you know, they may not complete the book, but they may read, you know, 70 pages out of 88 or 200 out of 300 pages or something. You get paid for all the pages they read. Uh, and right now, that's pulling in about for my own personal Fox Ray books. It's pulling in maybe a third of the money I'm making. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, okay. Uh, and certainly for what we're doing, um, Oddball, well, as, as the winner twins and Todd McCaffrey, yeah, close to the same. We're actually making a little bit more on selling ebooks than we are on, on Kindle Unlimited, but it's still, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have this other opportunity. And then the advantage of that is Amazon allows you to do Amazon ads. So you can you can advertise target you can set up targeted ads to the potential people who are gonna click on the buy the book or download the sample or I wanna read the Kindle Unlimited. So you're much closer to your your audience with that. Right. And, and that's an awful lot better than SEOs or anything else because the people who are looking for books aren't going to be looking for my website. You know, More than anything, they're going to go to Amazon and say, I want to read something. Now, a lot of times they say, I want to read something McCaffrey, uh, <laughs> and, and that's where they find me. Uh, it's been kind of like, what? But I, I put all these great little blurbs and everything out and all this stuff, and, and they're going, what's the latest by McCaffrey? Which is, you know, I like that. For sure. Um, but but it means that that at some level that audience is already locked. I'm not finding new people with who are if they're searching for McCaffrey, I'm finding people who are either looking for books by my mom, me, or my sister. They're not looking for different things. So they're an existing audience. And I you always need to grow your audience. What is it? 65% of all uh, of all customers are returning customers. That 35% are new customers and you want to keep on growing your market. So you got to find those new 35s. Exactly. Anyway, exactly. Yeah, we could, we, we could talk about marketing for hours because well, this is something I'm trying to learn. Well, this is something also that a lot of people are interested in on how does it work? Because there's a lot of people, you go to Amazon, there's a lot of books out there. Like they got zero reviews, one review. They've got, you know, no, you know, it's, 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 it's it hurts <laughs> seeing that and like things that they could actually do. I've obviously I've not read the story to so know if it's any good or not, but in, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt that it is a, a good story and somebody's gone through and done some editing to it. So it's not chocker block full of, of typos and, and poor grammar. Then there's gotta be some tools they can use that can get it so that people will know and they can build that audience. And if they start off with zero, then it's going to be hundred percent new. Yeah. But I'm here on, I'm looking on, on Amazon right now and I see, I, mean, I, I get, Kindles, I get the Kindle Unlimited. So I see all these um, Twin Souls series, the Steamwalker, the Magpies War. I get those all, um, the Kindle edition, I get them all for, at zero uh, yeah. because I'm 
Prime member, and so I get all that. But otherwise, just seven ninety nine to buy, nine ninety nine to buy. So, how does that work then in terms of yourself um, making money on your books? Uh, are you talking about how do we split this yeah, or what happened? Yeah. Okay, so a couple things. With Amazon, you can set your royalty rates. Typically, people go for the ebooks with the 70% royalty rate, and Amazon will charge you for a certain amount for charge for downloading the actual bytes to somebody's Kindle. Uh-huh. Um, and they take their profit off the top. So you get your profit after that. But you roughly, if if I say I'm selling a book for $8, that means I'm making $5.60. That's coming to me. Uh, you know, that's actually it's $7.99 by 0.7. So it's a little bit less than that. But, <laughs> but for, for a ballpark number, you know, you're looking at maybe five bucks a piece. Right. Uh, now, because we are a, a group of writers, we split that three ways. But even so, it gives you an idea. I mean, and then the, you get the huge arguments. If I lower the price, now with the Twin Soul books, they're small, they're novelettes basically in novellas. Right. Um, so because of that, they um, w- we priced them down. We spent some time experimenting, and we found that the two ninety nine price point for those books is working really well. Uh, for the Magpies War. We have it. Yeah, we only released Yeah, it's at seven ninety nine. And we're, you know, we're looking at that. Well, I mean, one of the things you can do is you can do a. The, Amazon has this cool thing called a countdown deal, so you can sit there and send out to everybody and publish online and say, "Hey, for so many days, this book is going to be ninety nine cents," and you know, you can you can get sales boosted that way. Obviously, while you're selling it for 99 cents, you ain't making that much money. But the idea is, again, people who have never seen your books might be more inclined to try. Right. Uh, you know, and and this is something I'm still learning because I'm kind of, I mean, with a Kindle book, you can always download a sample. So why you wouldn't download a sample of something that's got you, got you a little bit intrigued and just read that instead of saying, well, I'm only going to buy it if it's 99 cents. Um, and there's stuff on Amazon that's permanently free. I don't know. I know some people swear by this notion of giving your first book away for free uh, and then people will pick up your series and go on. I, it's an experiment I haven't tried yet. So um, what's the system you got now? You say you've got this other thing that Amazon does now? Which one? You mean um, Amazon the sample, ads? The sample? Oh yeah! Every time you go to Amazon, if you if you look at a book, I mean this is this has always been there. If you if you if you go look at an ebook, well, for that matter, with a book book, uh, with a book book, you can get a look inside. If you go to an ebook, you get a look inside. Oh, the look but inside you, covers. That, well, that look inside. Yeah, that's part of it. But also, there's send a free sample. Right now, the way Amazon's got it set up, if you look to the right side of an Amazon listing for a book, you'll see Kindle Unlimited, you'll see Buy Now with One Click, uh, you'll see Buy for Others, and then underneath that, there's a little box that says Send a Free Sample and Where to Deliver It To. So you can get a free sample of a book sent to you. You like it, you can go ahead and buy it. You don't like it, you don't have to buy it. Uh, And I think that's a really good thing. Amazon's had that for forever. Uh, But I think it's a really great way for people to say, okay, do I like this book or not? Uh, Again, if you're a Kindle Unlimited member, you get to kind of do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, You get to read the whole book if you like it. And, you know, you're paying for so many pages a month or whatever it is. So that can be really useful. The other thing that Amazon has is it has the ability to set up an account to do ad advertising. And that's kind of like a whole world in its own right. Actually, if you look, I'm going to get myself an example book here to look at. If, if, you, if you look at selling books because of these marvelous people in 20 books to 50K, there's a lot of stuff they talk about, about how to do it. You, you know this, you've been in the business long enough, but the first thing, in order to sell a book, ebook or or otherwise, the first selling thing you've got is your cover. Yeah. Uh, so your cover should give people, uh, you know, they should tell them what genre it's in just by looking at it. Uh, in this case, I'm looking at a copy of the Jupiter game, and the Jupiter game has the planet Jupiter. Uh, it has some sort of spaceship that we can see in Jupiter, and it has somebody in a spacesuit in the foreground. So we know just looking at this, that this is something to do with science fiction. 
straight off, and and we can guess that the the woman in this spacesuit is is one of the characters in the story. And so, I mean, the purpose of a, of a cover is to get you to pick up the book and then turn it over and look at the back at the the um, the ad copy on the back, right? Uh, you know, the blurb. And you read that and you go, hmm, do I like this or not? And then maybe you look inside or you say, you know, if you're at a Comic-Con or something like that, you hold the book over to somebody and say, how much is this? And if it's too much, you say, yeah, no, thanks. And if it's not, you say, yeah, I'll try it. And, and that's sort of the, those, those are techniques that, that as an independent author, you have to learn more. This is where the um, traditional publishers shine in that they have whole departments dedicated to figuring out what sort of cover works for what sort of genre and what sort of stuff to put on the back cover or even the front cover to help the book sell. Uh, so this is a whole bunch, and it's a very different skill set from straight author, you know, C. Jane, C. C. Jane Run, that sort of stuff, actually writing a story. This is, it's a different way. You have to think of things like taglines, you know, uh, something that gets that just grabs somebody and they say, oh, what's going on here? You know, what did I do? I had first contact. Aliens have reached out. That's in bold. Okay, so that's kind of the tagline. That, that For this book, that tells you what's going on. Uh, and then more, you know, uh, enough to uh, for you to either be able to make a choice as to whether you, you want to read this or not. Right. Um, now, the people in the 20 books to 50K, there's a whole bunch of different independents there. Um, there are a lot of them who have looked at this whole side of the world, and they've published a lot of books, and they do workshops and classes on it. Um, Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Cashman Rush, of course, who are also fellow judges, have done a whole bunch of workshops, both on improving your craft and the, you know, working in the world of independent authors. So they've got some really amazing stuff out there. And I, I look at them. I'm sort of of the opinion that if I read something, if I read a book and I get like for marketing or selling or, or any of that realm, and I get one good idea out of it, then it, it was worth all the time. Um, because I don't believe I know everything. Right. Uh, and I'm still learning and still trying. I mean, I, I guess one of the other tricks would be to have a, uh, a, a, you know, a good set of guidelines for, for when I'm successful, you know, and what does that look like? You know, does that, is that when you're Jeff Bezos? Is that when you're, you know, when, when you've bought your own mansion at Malibu? What, what, what is your success criteria? Is it, you can just pay your bills? I don't know. Uh, everybody's got different things. Um, and there's, you know, there's more than one thing on the list. Uh, some people may say, well, I, I want to win an Illustrator's the Future Award. <clears throat> <laughs> <clears throat> uh, and, and other people may say, I want to win a Writer's of the Future Award. And still others may say, well, I want to be a number one New York Times bestseller. Uh, by the way, if you want to become a number one New York Times bestseller, independent is not the way to go. The New York Times does not really deal with independence too much. The best you can get, you can get a USA Today bestselling author because USA Today actually looks at this stuff. Uh, but not not our buddies um, in, in the New York Times, at least now. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know. All right, so then a lot of people listening to this because this is the Writers and Illustrators of the, of the Future podcast are very much uh -huh. interested on Okay, I've got a story. What do I do? How to make it go? So this has been fascinating on, uh, uh -huh. you know, because you're able to play both sides of, uh, of the uh, coin here on yep. as an author. So that makes you one of those rare perspectives to be able to interview and just to get the... the well, to, to be fair, this has been going on for a while. I'm kind of late to the game. Uh, we call ourselves hybrid authors. Um, you know, we're kind of like the Prius of the universe. Uh, <laughs> but, but actually, Kevin Anderson and Rebecca Mesta are also hybrid authors. Dean and Chris are hybrid authors. Um, there's a lot of hybrid authors wandering around out there. It, it's 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 kind of it's it's becoming more and more. This this you know, it's nice when you can have a major publisher who's, who's publishing at least some of your stuff. Uh, but there are people who are making insanely good livings who have never been seen by a major publisher. There are also people who started off as hardcore independents and got picked up by major publishers. Andy Weir would be an example. An earlier example would be Christopher Paolini. Yeah. Uh, 
you know? Uh, so it's, it, the world is changing and it's getting quite interesting how it changes. Um, now there's another thing I should say about Amazon. This is a shameless plug. Um, but if you go to Amazon and you look for Sky Dragons, two words, the last book that Mom and I co-authored together, you will see that it is listed as an editor's pick best science fiction and fantasy book. Wow, congratulations. Another, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, it's another um, tag uh, recognition yeah. that helps sell your books. The other thing is there are uh, – Amazon does rankings – uh, they do rankings in different categories. So uh, if you're into fantasy adventure fiction, uh, that may be one category. Um, if you're um, looking at the – in the UK, the teen and young adult steampunky books, you'll see that Winter Wyvern, the first of the Twin Soul books, is listed as number five right now if you do it at this very instant. Uh, we've been pottering around there for a while. There's a different – in the U.S., it will actually have a slightly different ranking, obviously. Uh, in the U.S., we're, where are we today? We're number 27 in teen and young adult steam, steampunk ebooks. Uh, so obviously, that's something else to think about. Uh, you may discover that you have a bigger audience in the U.K. than you do in the U.S., you may get more sales out of that, even though the, the, the nation itself has got a few smaller population. So there's a lot of amazing room in this world of independence. And I really wouldn't have gotten into it. Well, I was kind of into it, but I really got into it a lot because of my exposure with the Winter Twins. Yeah. So how did you actually connect up with them? <laughs> Writers of the future. They were, they were guest uh, presenters at one of the, at the 2016 yeah. events. Uh, we, had, and, we had just met them at WonderCon. Kevin Anderson introduced us, introduced us to them. And, uh, then, and then the relationship blossomed immediately, and then we invited them to be uh, guest speakers. So that's, that's amazing. Well, they, they, have, they, they have this amazing problem. Um, they're both gorgeous. They're both small. They're like five foot, uh, and they look very young. So everybody sees them, you know, they go, oh, this is a drop, drop dead gorgeous girl. And very few people spend the time to discover how amazingly intelligent they are. They, they're genius class. Yeah. Uh, so, so they have this marvelous thing where people will, will look at them because they're so gorgeous and then make the mistake of thinking that that's all they can see. I got into a conversation with Britt about art. Uh, and she was showing me some of her art, and I showed her some of my art. And we both agreed that we should be doing more art. And that's actually where it all started. And then I discovered that they only lived half an hour from where I lived. I thought, ooh, writer's group. And we got together, and we hung out a lot. And somewhere along the line, they had the idea that it'd be really cool to collaborate with you know, the famous New York Times bestselling author, Todd McCaffrey. And I got the idea that it'd be really cool to collaborate with these amazingly vibrant, smart, young people. And with great trepidation one day, I said, hey, have you ever thought about collaborating? Uh, and they were like, yes, thank you. That would be so cool. We've been afraid to ask you. So that's kind of where we started. Uh, and then it's, it's been really fun. One of the things is the twins have been writing together since before they could speak. Uh, they have a lot of really cool, amazing ideas. Uh, and they learn to separate their egos from the story. They're not saying, oh, this is my character. You can't do this to it. Or, oh, that's my character. They work together to try and build the best stories possible. Uh, it's a leave your egos at the door writing style. Uh, and I was very interested in doing the same thing. And since we'd all been writing, it was very easy for us to go ahead and just leave our egos at the door and uh, work toward a good story. Brianna had had some ideas she wanted to explore. One of which was she had this great starting line. She said uh, it was, Crea was bored, and when she was bored, bad things always followed. And, of course, that is the first line to Winter Wyvern. And she had some more ideas, some of which are still kind of in the backstory that we're not going to release until it becomes – the story gets more developed. Um, but there were a lot of things we wanted to look at. We wanted a world where there were gods that walked among men. Um, we have a world where certain magical creatures 
require two souls to exist. One is the the animal part, and the other is the human part. Uh, and the winter wyvern is one of those. And that allowed us to tell this really cool story. And when we were done, we published it and we got it out there. Uh, and I thought, hmm. So the start of this story, we find out before the story actually starts that the first airship ever built equipped with guns has fired at a wyvern and a dragon and Kreia discovers that the wyvern has been hit by the airship. But I wanted to tell the story from the airship point of view. And that's how we get Cloud Conqueror, the second book. And things just kind of went on from there. And we have, we know easily that with these books, because they are shorter books, we can probably write for the next 20 years and not exhaust this magical world we've invented. And so we love that. Um, and, and that was our first endeavor together. The other thing we did is we built this really amazing world and plot and science uh, for our uh, The Magpie's War, our, our full-length novel. And we spent three, four months in intense discussions, throwing out ideas and playing with stuff. And so instead of having a good idea, we had this marvelous weave of magical thinking and beauty and a whole bunch. You can't see my hands. They're way up high. Uh, but, but we had, we had this, you know, it's just, it's this amazing story and we totally, we're, we're totally in love with it. We, we know where it's going. We have at least the next two books outlined in our heads uh, and probably more. And, and we had so much fun writing that. So we've been, it's, it's been a blast. Yeah, I've been preparing for this uh, interview where I read the, uh, the first couple of the Twin Soul series, and I didn't know you wrote steampunk. So I was like, wow. So how did you end up in uh, the steampunk? Well, part of we, we wanted a magical world, uh, but I wanted a magical world that was getting more technologically advanced, as it were. Not quite. Um uh, so we have this world where we have flying airships, uh, we have mages, we have uh, wyverns and dragons, and a whole bunch of other creatures. Uh, and we were playing with it. We also, it's a pure fantasy world. Sure. Which means it kind of breaks the whole steampunk idea. I mean, steampunk is more science fiction usually, uh, and sort of steampunk. Steampunk, when you think of it, when I think of it, I think H.G. Wells and and things written in that vein. And this isn't in that vein. This is a, an entirely different world for that. So we're in a very odd position, which makes it much harder to get people hooked onto our series. Once they're in, I think they're in for a long while. Uh, I mean, I got people asking me, when is book 21 coming out? And it's, it's, it's this amazing world and we're only scratching the surface on it right now. Uh, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to see what we call technology coming up. We have steam engines, we have locomotives, we have steam airships. Uh, we're going to see some more things coming along. But steampunk is actually based on magic. We have lifting spells to make our our airship balloons lift the airships. Uh, we still have steam engine locomotives to make the propellers turn, but they were started off and built with magical magical thinking as well. So it's kind of this very odd world mixed together. Wow. Okay. Fun. I thought it was being like, wow. Okay, steampunk. It's not steampunk. <laughs> Not quite. It, yeah. I mean, it, it falls in steampunk, and, and the majority of the readers find it in steampunk. But it's sort of I – mean, steampunk has become a broader field and, yeah. and almost should, should splinter. It's becoming harder for people – I mean, because some people are looking for steampunk, and they're expecting um, – Jules Verne, I meant, uh, with you know things like Around the World in 80 Days and, and uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, he had everything. He had submarines before there were submarines. He had airships before there were real airships. Uh, and, and he was the originator of, of a lot of stuff we consider steampunk. But then people came along and expanded steampunk. They said, well, so, I mean, I'm just playing, a, hang on, let me go see. Okay, so there's this uh, series by a guy named Dan Willis called The Arcane. The series name is The Arcane Casebook Book. Uh, I'm up to book six. 
we have a steampunkish world set in New York, in Manhattan, in the 1930s. World War I has happened, but there are sorcerers, there are alchemists, and there are rune rites. And these are the magic, and they do all sorts of fun stuff with that. So you've got this you've got this noir detective in a world where we have magic, and he's also a rune rite, so he writes uh, magical spells that way. And, you know, so does that fall into the regular steampunk world? No, right. Uh, but it is listed in steampunk fiction. Uh, it's you know, so it's kind of like it's also listed in paranormal and urban fantasy books. So. Where I mean, that's one of the nice things that's happening now. We have such an explosion of talent, such an explosion of possibilities that we're splintering all over the place. I mean, science fiction itself splintered. Really, I think the, the explosion of science fiction into different categories was um, was probably in the, the 70s, I'd say, 70s to the 80s, you know? Where we started moving more and more from, inst- you know, science fiction in the 20s when it was E. Doc Smith and the Lensmen and all, that was, okay, you got a spaceship, you're going to go someplace. Uh, and then all of a sudden you get people like Rogers Lasney writing Lord of Lights. Um, you get, uh, you know, you just get this huge pl- proliferation of, of different things. You get Harry Harrison with a stainless steel rat. Um, the world had changed, and now it's exploded even more. Because partly because we have more people writing, yeah. Uh, but but it is it it's it's cool. It makes it harder to find something you want to read, though. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's absolutely very very true. Now we're we're down to about the last five six minutes or so here. Now your mom was a great fan of. Um, of L. Ron Hubbard and remarked very favorably about several of his works and also just how much she appreciated him, his having started the uh, Writers of the Future contest back in 1983. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any particular favorite uh, either story or essay? Because you're also with the Writers of the Future contest. And if so, why is that? He wrote an incredible amount of stuff. I haven't gone through all of it. I, I got to say that for me, and I saw it only as, as the marvelous um, stage play, uh, the Auto Magic Horse was just a ton of fun. Yeah. You know, I really, really like that. That's probably my right now top of the list. Now, we also did To the Stars, which was, was interesting. And some of, his, some of his side dialogue in that is, is just amazing. You know, he was talking about the, I'm going to misphrase it, but he was talking about basically the, the poor and the unwashed who are grumbling and threatening to overthrow things. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's still the case today. And yeah. it was really well done. Uh, and of course, I read Typewriter in the Sky, which was, was just fun. Uh, but that, that's sort of where I am. Um, you guys have those marvelous books that include his whole thing about how he was working out what he was going to write, how much money he was making. I mean, in, in the Great Depression, this guy was making a full living as a writer, and that's, that's going some. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's impressive. So, okay, that, that's, that's a good answer. Thank you for that. Now, in terms okay. of being a judge for the Rise of the Future contest, what do you get, what for you is the, um, the most I guess the most value you see in the Writers of the Future contest? Well, there's a couple of ways of looking at the world. Um, for me, I like to say that, that it's all selfish and self-interest because I'm desperate for good books to read and, and good stories to read. And so the more I encourage people to enter the Writers of the Future and become story writers, the more stories I have to read. The reality is that, you know, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. It's, it's the best opportunity as a new writer of science fiction or fantasy uh, that you can find. You're being judged only on the quality of your work. Your name is removed before it's sent to the judges, so we don't know who you are. Uh, we're just looking at the words you put on the paper for the story you wanted to tell. And that's huge. And I'm glad that we're, I mean, this is amazing. This is a classic example of, you know, don't just return a favor, pay it on. And this is paying it on massively. Uh, I, we know that a lot of our current judges were past winners of the Writers of the Future, which to me is kind of, you know, that, that, that says it all right there. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Nettie Akorafor, for example, would be one of our shining examples. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, this is something worth doing. And it's a great way to learn the craft. 
You know, you write a story, you submit it once every three months, you keep on doing it until somebody sends you a lot of money and a plane ticket to Hollywood. <laughs> what wrong? There uh, you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's and especially right now with the way that the pandemic's hit, you know, it's even made it harder for the arts to be uh to really to really accelerate with within the arts, because uh, the schools aren't there to help you along and yeah. it's definitely something but for either the writer or the artist contest. All right. So well, I mean, that's well. Hang on. I was going to add. I mean, the other thing that's out there that's that's at least to my way of thinking relatively new. It may have been there for a while, and I just missed it. Is the forums? Um, there's a lot of some of the past winners are out there helping new people and offering critique, comp, you know, help support and everything and becoming a Writers of the Future winner and becoming an Illustrator of the Future winner. And so you have this beautiful community of people who are trying to make things better, and you get a lot of help there. Exactly. That's the Writers of the Future Forum. That can be found at writersofthefuture.com. And just for people who don't know, writersofthefuture.com is pretty much a one-stop shop for all things Writers of the Future. You've got the forum, there's the podcast, there's a blog, there's um, the uh, Writers of the future online writing workshop, all these things are free. So anybody, we got something for everybody to help you along as a writer. And the, and it doesn't mean you have to write science fiction or fantasy because a lot of the tools for how to write a story are the same cross genre. And a lot of our past winners for the contest have gone on to other genres that they're writing in. So um, anyway, so now Todd, for someone to um, who's not familiar with your works, what would you recommend as a, a Todd McCaffrey primer? Oh gosh, um, I'm 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 one of these people who likes to write, as they call, as they say, broad. Um, my mother was the same, really. Uh, you know, mom is is known for the Dragon Riders of Pern, but she also wrote the Tower and the Hive series. She wrote the Ship Who Sang, which is a collection of shorts turned into a novel. Um, she had a huge bunch of books. She also wrote the the Freedom series, which is a ton of fun. Um, so at some level, it's kind of like, well, what do you like to read? Um, if you like uh, an alternate history, which is young adult in nature, then you should look at the Steamwalker. Uh, if you're curious about uh, first contact with aliens and you like a humorous slant, you should go look at the Jupiter game. Um, if you're interested in what the first artificial intelligence might be like and not an evil monster, um, I highly recommend L.A., which used to be called City of Angels, but unfortunately pretty much every book in existence has been called City of Angels once at a time. Uh, but L.A., the first AI, uh, was the last book of mine that my mother read. Um, and she said to me at the time when I said, well, what do you think? She says, I think you've got a blockbuster there. And I said, well, can I quote you on it? And she said, but I'm your mother. And so <laughs> I have not noticed how I have very carefully quoted her on it without officially quoting her on it. That's very Sneaky. good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, it's a big book because it's a big subject, uh, but I'm still very proud of it. And it is the only one so far that has been made available as an audiobook because I am the voice for the audiobook. Uh, so those there are those three. Uh, if you're interested in quick reads, they're a lot of fun. Um, go check out the Twin Soul series, starting with Winter Wyvern, or because we knew people would want to do this, there's an omnibus version of the first five books, Twin Soul series Omnibus One. Um, Which is what I'm reading right now. Oh, you! Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, that's that's that's. It's interesting because we took you know, basically we've we've taken a bunch of comic link things and slapped them together. Um, but yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. We're looking at the um, at at ways we can maybe make this more approachable um, because we started off talking about Kreia and her journey, and then we spent the next two books talking about Captain Ford and his journey, which is. For some people, probably uh, what they call in, in the, the field an eyeball kick. Uh, so we're looking, we're actually looking at producing a, a, a Kreia's journey, which is the first four or five books dealing with Kreia alone or dealing with Kreia as a central character. But so we're doing, we're, we're, we're having fun with this series. I would, you know, check that one out. If you want a 
magical murder mystery set in the aftermath of World War One, uh, and using the magpie's rhyme, then you should check out the magpie's war. Uh, we're pretty proud of that one too. Well, that's great. So it's been really, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It was, uh, took a direction that I wasn't really planning on, but I'm really glad we went into on marketing, really be able yeah. to how to market yourself as a, as a writer going through the uh, indie route. So this has been, this has been a really, really fun interview. I'm so glad that you uh, took the time to help uh, clear out some of the different points for the aspiring writers to, uh, to be able to learn more about it. Well, thank you very much. It's been, been an interesting learning experience. Yes, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, thank you very much, Todd. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.